Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be looking at this chapter together in your bulletin. There's also an insert with the text today and a place for some notes down below. Throughout the Bible, we have the Word of God to us penned by human authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and many of those human authors were deeply acquainted with suffering. They tasted the pain of life and the misery of life in a fallen world. Moses, the writer of the first five books of the Old Testament, was a man who suffered greatly. Job is kind of our model in the Old Testament of somebody who suffered but did not curse God. David, throughout his life, gave us not only the story of what he went through, but penned so many songs, so many psalms of what was going on internally and facing suffering and trials. As we reach the New Testament, next to Jesus Christ, I think the person that I would identify as the one who suffered most deeply, at least from what we have in the written record, is the Apostle Paul. Yes, the other apostles suffered. Peter and James and the others, many of them were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. But the Apostle Paul, in a sense like David, gives us a little window into his heart in the midst of suffering, helps us to understand suffering. I'm not one who would claim to have been through personally a whole lot of suffering in my life. Some, for sure, but to the degree that Paul has faced it, I don't feel like I'm the authority on it. But thankfully, we don't have to just go to somebody who has that personal experience. We can hear from God Himself how we can face afflictions and suffering in this world. This passage gives us the Creator's description of how His creation, His crown of creation, was intended to function in different environments. In In this chapter, we have basically the the chapter on how the human being faces uh, adversity. It's a biblical anthropology. Anthropology is just the study of man, his nature, and his function. And as it relates to the nature of human beings who live in a fallen world and suffer all the infirmities of this life, he gives us a clarity to how to face this suffering based on who we are. So, follow along as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, We also believe and we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, 
so that the grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are confused by being told to look at things that are unseen. How do we see things that can't be seen? And Lord, we recognize the mystery of Your Word the beautiful provision that You have made by Your Holy Spirit to grant us eyes to see and ears to hear that which the natural man could not see. Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would testify to our spirit about the truth of Your Word, that we would be able to see it, not only to understand it, to embrace it, but then to live it out in our lives difficult words that You give us in Your Word, especially as we face suffering and affliction. It's very hard for us to rest when we are troubled. But Lord, we want to rest in You and in Your Word, and we pray that Your Holy Spirit would empower us, Your people, to live as Your adopted sons and daughters for Your glory and for Your honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the fifth sermon in a series that I've entitled Lamentations for Today, Honestly Facing Suffering and Sorrow. If you want to binge watch or listen to the four sermons that came before this, the context might be helpful if you've missed out on what we've been looking at. Basically, to summarize, we see the whole story of the Scripture is the story of God's redeeming love in Jesus Christ. Then we in this world, because of the fall of man into sin, face sorrow, face pain, face difficulty, and we should do so honestly. We should lament to the Lord, cry out to Him, and call upon Him for help. And when, he, when we call, He listens. And the whole Bible is a rich treasury of God's redeeming love, His redeeming grace for His people. And so, as we sit under that Word and listen to that Word, we find direction for how to lament in a productive way in this world that is so wrong. So, we've been looking at these rich themes and that in turn call us and empower us to respond to life's sufferings. Up to now, we've looked at suffering and hope from Lamentations 3. We've looked at suffering and grace from 2 Corinthians 12, suffering and joy from 1 Peter 1, and last week, suffering and salvation from Romans 5. Now, I want us to turn our attention to this capstone on suffering, suffering and eternity from 2 Corinthians 4. In this passage, we hear three warnings as we face suffering. Warnings from somebody who's been through suffering, physical suffering, relational suffering, and emotional suffering, all sorts. Don't treasure the wrapper, we'll see in verses 7 to 9. We'll be admonished not to forget Jesus. 
His death and His resurrection, and don't lose heart. First, don't treasure the wrapper. Verse 7, Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. This vivid image was something that the people of Paul's day would completely understand. If you look at any of the archaeological sites of this day, the most common thing you'll find is clay, clay pots, broken clay pieces. And they were the containers, the plastic grocery bags or paper grocery bags, the recyclable grocery sack. You have them all over your house, don't you? We have a sleeve of those plastic ones that we keep shoving them in, shoving them in, shoving them in, and you pull them out the other end when you need them. Those cute and pretty ones that you can carry through the market and not be ashamed of, those ones that are insulated, that keep your stuff cold, special pots for special uses, but they're still at the end, special bags for special uses, but at the end, they're still just usually plastic bags. We throw them out if they break. And so, these jars of clay represent us, just frail human beings in our weakness, jars of clay. But what is this treasure, this treasure that we have within us? This treasure is showing the surpassing power it belongs to God, but what is that surpassing power pointing to? In the context, it's one of the most beautiful ways that Paul describes this treasure, that It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, Christ Himself. The glory of Christ that we can see God in His glory through Christ. And that treasure is something that we've been given and we're ambassadors of. We share that with a lost world that doesn't have that hope. And so, we have inside us this treasure, and this treasure is what propels us. It's what keeps motivating us because the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is our mission now, our mission to survive in this life and to thrive in this life, to have an abundant life, but it's also the message that we share with those around us who are lost and dying and need to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, that treasure is ours, but it's in that jar of clay The treasures that we have are what we value in our hearts. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus Christ is that treasure for the believer. If it's anything else, we've run after idols, and we need to come back to where our true treasure is. That treasure in this jar of clay, the clay, the dust, the dirt, it's just made up of water and dirt. It's insignificant in itself, and that's us. Jim Elliott, who was a missionary who was martyred at the age of 29, talked about himself and his co-workers as a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. When we really see us for who we are in our nature, we are just clay pots. It's Christ in us that is somebody. Martin Luther said, I simply 
taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The Word did it all. It is the power that's within us that is magnified when we really understand our true nature, that we are clay pots. John Piper, in preaching on this passage, his sermon, Calling All Clay Pots, said, too many people say, I'm so ordinary, so average and undistinguished, I can't do anything significant. I've heard that. I'm not trained. I haven't been to Bible college or seminary. I don't have the gifts or abilities. I can't lead that. But he goes on to say, God's concept of ministry is so different from the world's concept. The world stresses the classy container, not the glory of God in human weakness. If there's one thing that we are coming to learn here as a church, it's that God's purpose to get the glory at all things determines how we do all things. Here, God's purpose is to make sure that we see that the surpassing power belongs to Him and not to us. How does He do it? He puts the treasure of His gifts and His gospel into clay pots like you and me. And know what He says. He says, your ordinariness is not a liability, it's an asset, if you really want God to get the glory. Do you see your clayishness as really an asset? I'm weak, but yes, you can show God's glory. He says, no one is too common, too weak, too shy, too inarticulate, too disabled to do what God wants you to do with your gift. It's the gift in you. It's the treasure. So, look further at what Paul says about this, this wrapper, this jar of clay in verse 8. He describes this as afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to his despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Here we see this back and forth going. I've highlighted in one color the first set of words and highlighted in another in the second set of words. The first clause, one commentator points out, is contrasted with the second clause. The first clause implies the earthiness of the vessel, but the second clause takes into account the excellency of the power inside. So, maybe I could break it down this way. Because we're clay jars, we're afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. But since we contain the surpassing power of God, we're not crushed, we're not driven to despair, we're not forsaken, we're not destroyed. The power of God in us preserves us even though we're weak. One author said, we are squeezed but not squashed. We're bewildered but not befuddled. We're chased after but never cut off, knocked down but knocked out, not knocked out. Some of us feel like we're teetering on the edge probably. Nathan, you're just kind of mincing words here. I mean, nobody likes the affliction any more than they would like to be crushed. Recognizing crushed is worse, but nobody likes the affliction or the perplexing or the persecution or the striking down. None of those are good things, yes. I recognize that. But God ministers to us where we are at, and He puts us in those positions for a reason. And that affliction, that pressure, comes down upon us for a purpose. Maybe I could illustrate it. Uh, There was a PBS documentary created, I think it was in 2007. It was called Note by Note, The Making of Steinway L1037. 
that specific piano with that number. They described how they make these skillfully crafted instruments that produce such a phenomenal sound that are sought after by professionals across the globe. For, hun- for over 140 years, Steinway pianos have been made the same way that they've always been made by craftsmen. Each piano's journey is complex. It spans 12 months, 12,000 parts, 450 craftsmen, and countless hours of fine-tuned labor. Most crucial is the rim-bending process in which 18 layers of maple are bent around on an iron press to create the shape of a Steinway Grand. Five coats of lacquer are applied, hand-rubbed to give the piano an outer glow. The instrument then goes to the pounder room where each key is tested 10,000 times to ensure quality and durability. Again and again and again pounded. Why does it go through such an extreme workout? Because it has to be the best instrument ever made. It has to be able to resound and sound the most beautiful that any instrument could ever sound. And if you think about your life and the afflictions that you undergo, God has a purpose and a reason behind that so that His glory, the treasure, could be seen and heard for all of its glory. The way that He works His light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, shown to a lost world, is when He works in us through that suffering. Don't treasure the wrapper. We tend to want to protect this body, care for this body, and we work on it with all of the nutrition, diets, exercise, creams, pills that we can to keep this body from what it's eventually going to do, waste away. In the midst of our clayishness, we should not miss Jesus' death and resurrection. In verses 10 through 15, we see Paul really bring this focus back in. I've highlighted in my Bible each time the word, the name Jesus comes up, and I have one, two, three, four, five, six different times he brings about Jesus in this subject of affliction. You see, for Jesus, for Paul, throughout his life and throughout his writings, we see that Jesus is not just about the hereafter. Jesus isn't just about the person I believe on to get eternal life. That Jesus isn't just somebody I pray to so that I could be saved. But Jesus is about everything that I do and say and think in this life. Jesus in His death and in His resurrection is so integrated into Paul's view of man and thinking and redeemed man and how do we live Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. We see that Jesus, the one who is raised, guarantees that we will be raised Someone pointed out that God exhibits death in the living so that He might exhibit life in the dying. Just think of it. We're all in the process of dying. Our bodies 
are decaying and wasting away. Some of us are more aware of that at today than we were five years ago, ten years ago. But it's happening. Death is at work in us. But spiritually, life is at work in us. Christ is transforming us. The new life of the believer starts to overshadow the earthly life that we live. As Jesus becomes the focus, and we don't just leave Jesus back on the day that you signed a card and walked an aisle, but Jesus and His death and resurrection becomes vital for facing that next struggle, facing that trial. Jesus spoke about this death and life principle in John chapter 12. Remember when He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. That's Jesus' mindset of dying is living. And Paul incorporates that into his life goal and the way that he goes about living In Philippians 3, he says that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's His purpose in life. That's His goal as Christ is integrated into His daily life. In Galatians 2, you're familiar with where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. On the heels of 2 Corinthians 4, where we're reading, we see in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul gives us an insight as to how the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus comes to bear on His life message, His life purpose. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, so we're always of good courage. Why? Well, we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, but we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's what we long for. We long for relief from the suffering and the pain of this life. We want to be at home with the Lord, but then he says, yes, we are of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and home with the Lord, but whether we are at home or whether we are away, we make it our aim to please Him. You see, His life purpose is so shaped by glorifying God, by pleasing Christ, that it doesn't matter whether He's here in this earth facing the afflictions and sufferings or whether He's present with the Lord. His goal is to make God's name great, to celebrate Christ. So, whether in life or death, we must courageously, and now by faith, not by sight, be laser-focused on glorifying and pleasing Christ. So, he says in verse 15, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. More people are going to see your testimony of living under suffering and tribulation for the glory of God, and they're going to go to Christ and they're going to thank Him. So, this brings glory to God. And finally, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't lose heart. Verses 16 to 18, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, these are the things that are eternal. How can you face the trials and tribulations of life, the suffering that is there, and not lose heart? Some of you are in the midst of the difficulty and suffering right now. So, it's a little harder for you to hear it without the press of your current circumstances. Some of you are, by God's grace, not in the midst of it, but you have been, and maybe you need to learn a little bit from that as you look at it through the lens of God's Word so that, for all of us, God has something in the future for us that we're going to have to endure, some suffering that we will have to face. So, what keys to suffering, what three realities is He, is he drilling into so that we don't lose heart? Verse 16, the eternal values the inner more than the outer you. When your mind is focused on the eternal, what matters most is the inner you and not the outer you. You see that? Our outer self, that's wasting away. You can expect that. But he says, our inner self, what's happening there? It's being renewed day by day. This morning I walked through the cemetery and I was going through contemplating eternity and seeing headstone after headstone, diversity of dates, diversity of sizes and shapes. There's a lot of differences in the, what people write as kind of their last remarks. But there was no difference, I'm sure, with what was below the surface rotting corpses, dead bodies, wasting away. That's the reality of the outer man. It's going to waste away. The difference was where are they resting? Are they resting their soul in Christ or were they resting in something else? If they're resting in Christ, they're waiting for the resurrection that will lead to the glorification of their bodies and life eternal. If they weren't resting in Christ, there will be a resurrection of their body, but for, it will be for eternal death. And so, it's so important for us not to lose heart, keep focused on what really matters, not the shell, not the wrapper, not the outer man, but the inner man. That's not to say that our physical bodies don't have some importance, but in comparison to the transformation of the inner man, that's where the focus we have that Paul gives us. Secondly, the glory of the future over the affliction of the present. We need to consider the glory of the future over the affliction of the present. And it's a relative unimportance of the present. He says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. He calls it light and momentary, and some of us just want to say, Paul, there's nothing light about this affliction. It doesn't seem momentary at all. It seems like it's going on and on and won't stop. But all of it is temporal and not eternal. Compared to eternity, these things are light and momentary. And we need those reminders again and again and again because in the midst of it, we forget that they are light and momentary. We see 
this relative in unimportance needs to be reiterated again and again. Light and momentary is the affliction compared to what? The weight of glory in eternity. Hands down, it doesn't compare. There is no comparison. It's beyond all comparison. Eternity and glory in eternity is way more than the present. Thirdly, the reality of things you can't see over the things that you can see. This is kind of bizarre, and it's hard for us in our day and age of scientific materialism of the I'll believe it when I see it, seeing is believing mentality that permeates all of our existence. But if we're truly going to face suffering in light of eternity, we need to see that the things that are seen are the things that are transient. They're going away. But the things that are unseen, these are the things that will be around forever. They're eternal. That's impossible for a natural man to understand. It just truly is. You don't get it unless God gives you the faith to believe it, the eyes to see it. I'm telling you to look on what you can't see and believe it because that's what's eternal. The things that you can see, the things you're working for, the things you're planning for, the preparations you're making with your retirement and with your job and with your home and with your car and with your possessions and things, rust, rust, moth, they're going to destroy. But what's eternal will last. How are you preparing the things that are eternal? The preacher in Ecclesiastes Use this description of a mist or vanity of vanity. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's just vanity. The end of the matter, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. When we're facing the suffering today, heed Paul's advice. One who has suffered one who has been through great trials and difficulties, to keep eternity in view. Don't treasure the wrapper. Don't miss Jesus' death and resurrection in all of our life. And don't lose heart. Let's pray. I want to pray as the Puritans prayed this prayer called Valley of Vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought us to a valley a vision, where we live in the depths, but we can see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, we behold your glory. Let us learn by the paradox that the way down is the way up, and that to be low is actually to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, and that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, and to have nothing is to possess all that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the well is, the brighter that the stars shine. Let us find your light in our darkness, your life in our death, your joy in our sorrow, your grace in our sin your riches in our poverty, and your glory in our valley. Amen.
Our hymn of response this morning is hymn number 119. We'll stand and sing verses 1 and 2 of I sing the almighty power of God as the elders come to prepare the table. <laughs> 